Amen. Would you take your hymnals as we come to the table? We're not going to sing this, but I want you to notice a hymn. And go with me to number 718. Number 718, um, this, this song has just been scrolling in my head over the last few days, uh, thinking about the new year. It's a great hymn, Day by Day. I just want you to notice the, the first verse. Notice the lyrics. You know, when we sing a song, sometimes we're just singing words and we don't think. But notice what he's saying or she was saying in this poem. <clears throat> day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here, trusting in my Father's wise bestowment. I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure he gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. You know, as we go into a new year, none of us knows what's coming. We always take stock of our life. We set plans. We make goals. We vision. Maybe we make resolutions. But a man plans his way, but the dispensing of it is of the Lord. And he's a sovereign God. No matter, though, what comes into your life in this year, a setback, a triumph, an emergency, a tremendous victory, all those things that we don't yet know, yet God does know them, and every day, Day by day, God will have for you the strength you need to face that day. We just need to learn to trust him and to rest in him and to take everything, as he says here, as coming from his loving hand. He is a loving father who cares for us. And I just wanted to think about that as we come to the table today. And as we celebrate the table, I want to encourage you as we come before the Lord, that we, we, we're just going to come forward, we're going to take our elements, we're going to go back to our seats as we've been doing, and then we're going to partake together, so hold them with you as you always do. Um, there again, you don't have to be a member of Emmanuel Bible Church to partake with us. If you know the Lord as your personal Savior, we invite you to partake with us in remembrance of what Christ has done. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Notice with me what he says in verse 10. It says, you have put on the new self, and it is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the one who created it. Here, in this new man and in the church, there is not a Greek or a Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Join me in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts today that we, that we may see, that we may understand. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and thought. You would open not only the eyes of my heart, but Lord, that you would open my mouth to speak what you would have me to say. That Lord, as we study together, as we think these thoughts, they may be thoughts that propel us to live as the new man in Christ, where Christ is all and in all. And that, Father, these very traits that we have read about this morning here in these verses would flood our lives. That, Father, we would truly be your body, that, Lord, we would be your body here on earth as we follow the dictates of our head, who is Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week and next, we are going to go on a topical journey into a subject that may not even be on your personal radar, I don't know. But you need to know about this subject. I love, I'm looking forward to jumping back into the book of Romans. I've greatly enjoyed our study in the book of Romans. We're going to be finishing up talking about gifts. And we'll be finishing up the chapter, chapter 12. And then moving into chapter 13, talking about human government. Looking forward to that exegesis. And exposition of what God tells us there in his word. But this is an important subject. I've been studying this, trying to prepare for this message and next week for about three months, trying to put these thoughts into my little pea brain, praying that the Lord would give me wisdom and ability to be able to just communicate with you some things that are really important. Teenagers, this may seem boring to you, I don't know. But my prayer is that you'll listen up this morning and next week. Because this subject is the world in which you will be living. And these issues are going to be, it is vitally important you understand what's going on. You know, there have been some grave threats that have, in my lifetime, that the church has faced. The inerrancy debate, that's going to always be a debate, but really was big in the church in my young adult life. Open theism, um, new perspective on Paul, the Jesus seminar, on and on you can go. Talk about various threats that the church has faced. But what we're going to talk about today and next week, the Deconstruction Project, is perhaps the gravest threat to American Christianity that American Christianity has yet faced. I want you to understand something as well. This is not a political sermon has nothing to do with politics. This is not in any way going to be like a defense of the Republican Party. That's not what this is about. This is about the church. The Deconstruction Project is an attempt in America to threaten and undermine the very legitimacy of the church as an organization and of the gospel itself. 
I just finished reading a book about the, Rus the Russian Revolution. Amazing times. What those people went through. In the Russian Revolution, the church was not attacked for just kind of what it believed. It was attacked for what it was. And it was presented to the society, to the Russian people who were very religious in the sense of being Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. And that permeated the culture. But the Bolsheviks presented the church as a basilisk, as a parasite on society. That it was the opium of the people and that its purpose was to oppress people. And the culture eventually bought it. And it became a very atheistic society. Although we saw in our lifetime how that crumbled. The deconstruction project that we were going to talk about, it's a, this is a topical study in how the deconstruction project is cultural Marxism in disguise and is a sheep in wolf's clothing. And you're sitting out there saying, what is the deconstruction project? I haven't heard about this. You'll hear more today and next week. What this project does is it is positing or teaching that evangelicalism, the way we know it, the way we have practiced it, what you have believed, that evangelicalism in essence is not Christianity. Rather, it is a construct of white supremacy. And that it is a tool that people have used to gain power and to oppress. It's got its foot in the door in the church. It didn't start in the church. It started outside the church. But now, and I will give you names of various books and various places, it has been embraced by various segments of the church and is being taught as truth in churches. And it's only beginning. It really masquerades along the lines of things like white guilt. Think with me in Colossians 3, 10 to 14 for just a minute. We're not going to expound those verses. We're going to look at them in greater detail next week, what he's saying about the church. But he is showing that in the church, in the body of Christ, there is great diversity. Isn't that what he's showing there? He does the same thing in Galatians chapter 3. He says, in the church, in Christ, in the new man, which is being built upon the image of its creator, there is neither Greek nor Jew. Let me just ask you, in the first century, was there a conflict between Greeks and Jews? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Positionally, there's not Greek or Jew. Practically, did they have issues to work out? You better bet. You better believe it. There is not barbarian. And what's a barbarian? A barbarian isn't somebody that's running around in a grass skirt. Okay? A barbarian in the Greek word, barbaros, is a play, it's an onomatopoeia, it's a play on words which means somebody who babbles. Somebody who doesn't speak in an intelligible language. And so the Greeks, they loved the Koine Greek. They loved the language, and it's the trade language of the Roman world. But anybody that didn't speak that was considered a 
barbaros, a barbarian. They spoke an unintelligible speech. But Paul's telling us here the gospel is for the barbaros. It's also for the Scythian. Who is that? Who is the Scythian? It's interesting. It's the only place in the scripture that the Scythians are mentioned. These are a nomadic race of people that live in the region of the Caucasus and Transcaspia. And really, they are the forebears of the people that we call the Russian Cossacks. They were a very warlike people. They lived nomadically, and they were tremendous archers and horsemen. Paul says the gospel's for them. And yet, everybody in the Roman world was scared to death of the Scythians because they would raid and they would pillage and they would burn. There's neither, as he says in Galatians 3, male nor female. There's neither free nor slave. You're all one in Christ. That's the reality. Has it always been that? Not in practice. We need to own up and realize that the American church does share some of the blame and guilt for past actions and present actions. We have to own that. We need to own that. But we must also notice and realize that there are cultural forces at work that are trying to play on this subject to create greater division and to destroy the influence of the church in America. How are they doing it? We're going to talk about it today. Now, here's where we're going. Today, we're going to get the lay of the land, and I want you to understand the issues. We're going to look at terms, and then we're going to just deal with a side shoe to this. Next week, we're going to talk about the deconstruction project, which is closely linked to what is called CRT, critical race theory. We've already done studies on that. We're not going to just talk about what CRT teaches. What I'm talking about is the sister that has grown out of CRT, which is a specific project that is at work to bring down evangelicalism called the Deconstruction Project. Now, that's where we're going. Let's start by getting the lay of the land. You need to understand some terms. You know, you turn on the news, you listen to the radio, you look online, you hear all these words, these catchphrases, and some of them are still new to me, some of them I'm learning to use, they weren't a part of my vocabulary, some of them now are, but it's just kind of where we live, it's, we need to understand the lay of the land. So here's some terms. Okay, the first one is, you know, a lot of times now we talk about the narrative. The narrative. And then we talk about lived experience someone's lived experience and how lived experience has really become the defining set of truths for an individual what I have experienced in life my lived experience so the narrative is the story sometimes it's a true narrative sometimes it's the narrative they want us to believe right the story they want us to believe but there's a narrative out there in the culture. And then everybody has their own story. My personal experience. You know, I didn't live your experience growing up and you didn't live mine. And the lived experience of an individual is very formative and powerful in how they perceive truth. You know, you grow up in Watts, down in L.A. area, and, you know, in inner city. And you had a totally different lived experience than me as a country boy living up on a, growing up on a farm. The lived experience is vastly different and can lead to very different ways of looking at the world. And I want you to understand this idea of the lived experience for just a minute as we go into this, because we're going to come back to it again next week as we go deeper into what these guys are saying about the importance of the lived experience. Now, 
Here's another thing we need to be conversant with. You hear this all the time, talking about white supremacy. American exceptionalism is now tied directly in many minds and in the narrative, in the narrative, American exceptionalism and nationalism are all a part of white supremacy. Now, what is white supremacy? You know, when I think about white supremacy, I always thought about something that Hitler believed, or the KKK. Now, it is being asserted that you and I's very whiteness has caused us to buy into the structural and systemic racism on which America was built. So the narrative is saying America was built on structural and systemic racism and a belief in white supremacy. And the church was a complicit tool in helping it gain power. That's the narrative. That's the story that is being told out there. And you see it in many places in many different ways. And so we talk about racism as being both structural and systemic. In other words, when we say structural, that racism is structural in America, when they say that, when it's assertive in the narrative, they're saying that the very structure of America is built on racism. And then it becomes so pervasive that it is systemic. Now, you know what a systemic infection is. It is an infection that permeates your body. Sometimes you get a splinter and you get a little infection in your hand, and it's just localized there. It's not systemic. Sometimes you could get something in your blood that would just go everywhere and would give you a system, systemic or a system-wide infection. And what is being asserted in the narrative is that white supremacy and racism is structural and systemic in America in the experience of what it means to be American. That's asserted in the narrative. Everybody still with me? Have I lost you? I know this is heady stuff. I was praying all week that I could keep you with me as I talk about this because it's important, but we're getting the lay of the land. Okay. <clears throat> These things are all a part of the movement in the news and in the back door. BLM, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, big war for that that actually cost a governor in Virginia because of parents rising up in Loudoun County standing up against what was being taught in their schools and saying no. Critical race theory, defund the police, all these things are sisters that wrap into this movement. Okay. Here's the main accusation against, let me go back. They're not going to say in this accusation against American evangelicalism that you can't read your Bible. They're not going to say Jesus didn't die on the cross. They're not going to say Jesus doesn't love you. You know what they're going to say? These are the issues they're attacking. And they all go hand in hand. One is racial discrimination. One is toxic masculinity and patriarchy. That the church has repressed women. It, repre it repressed minorities. It repressed women. And it has also repressed what? LGBT folk. Those three have all come together. And they have all done so under the rubric of the social justice movement. That's the main accusations that are being leveled at the church. And they're saying that the church has been oppressive and repressive in society. And that we are the opium of the people 
and that we are a parasite on the nation. Very same message that was given in Russia in 1917 going into the 20s. Very same message. But these are the main accusations. Racial discrimination, toxic masculinity, sexual identity. I got to keep looking at my notes because I'm very tied to my notes this morning. Most times when I preach, it's all in my head. This is in my head, but it's also got me tied to my notes. Okay. Let's go to the next one. What does it mean? Okay, we're talking about deconstruct. When I started reading about the deconstruction project, I was like, what in the world is this? I started reading about it in theological journals. It's like, what? What is this? What does it mean to deconstruct? Now, I've torn down buildings, so I guess in that sense I know what it means to deconstruct a building. I think, well, what does this mean to deconstruct? It's kind of a technical term. It's never kind of been used much in the church, but you better get familiar with hearing it. Because people talk about it a lot now, to deconstruct. Someone deconstructs their faith. Now, it used to be people just said they became an apostate, or they walked away from Christ, or whatever. But now, we kind of got this word, and we say they've deconstructed. So what does it mean to deconstruct? And I, what I want to do today now is instead of just talking about the deconstruction project, because as I began to study this and I began to think about it, this subject got really big in my head, that we need to understand it. Because people deconstruct all the time, according to what we're talking about. Now, what they're trying to do is they are trying to target young people of college age, and they're trying to get them to buy into a new narrative so that they will deconstruct. They want to deconstruct what you taught them. Know that. There are people out there... Who are they? Well, ultimately, it's the spiritual wickedness in high places. But it is being fronted by media, academia, and all these powerful cultural forces that have bought into the lie of Satan. Okay? But, but there are people who are targeting young people. Know that! Your kids are in the crosshairs. And there are people out there that don't want them to believe the narrative that you have taught them. And they're going to try to deconstruct it. They're going to try to dismantle it and take it apart. It happens to people all the time. So what does it mean to deconstruct? Let's just think about the big subject. When we talk about deconstruct, this is what we're talking about. As people, we construct our life mentally, spiritually, around a set of truths that we hold to be true. Maybe you were taught it as a kid. Whatever, but, but this is how you built your life. And it gives you a mental framework around which to build the structure of your life. And everything makes sense in your life. It's kind of like we used to talk about worldview. But everything kind of makes sense in your life because of this way that you have built, constructed truth in your mind. And then something happens in your life that challenges those suppositions. And it undermines the trust that you had. And all of a sudden you come into a mental storm and the very framework of your life is threatened with collapse. And this takes on many forms. In this building, today, there are people who are deconstructing. I'm going to suggest that as you've gone through life, you've had to deconstruct at times. Okay? And I'm going to let's develop this. So in here, there may be someone who was raised in a loving home. And every week on a Sunday, 
they went to a building and they worshipped a God that they thought was very real. And during the week, they picked up their Book of Mormon. And they read about who Jesus is. They even read in the book of Alma, I found out this week, that he was born in Jerusalem. And they built their whole life around something they held as true. And then something happened in their life, and they met somebody who was also a believer in Jesus, but said, the Book of Mormon's not God's word. What? Of course it is. But through a series of events, God the Holy Spirit takes them from a set of things that they hold as complete truth around which they have built their life, and he dismantles it. And they slowly deconstruct and they build a new structure around something they hold to be true in God's word. And they are converted. So there are people in here who are deconstructing from any number of things. Maybe Catholicism, Mormonism, whatever. Put it all over there and they're coming into Christ. But there's also people in here who are, you know what they're doing? They're sitting here, and they're deconstructing and leaving Christ. And we need to understand, when you interact with people, there are people all around you all the time that are going through this process. Maybe you've been through it yourself. How do you help them? What, what, what do you do to minister to them, to bring them along as they go through this project? Now, when do people deconstruct? Let's think about this for a minute. When do people deconstruct? Essentially, people deconstruct their life during times of turmoil or times of transition. When is a young person going to be most susceptible to leaving Christ? When they leave your home and for the first time, they're living in a dorm. And they start going to school, and they have to take a class in cultural studies. And in the class in cultural studies, they're supposed to go to a gay bar and see what it's like in a gay bar. They're supposed to do this and do that. And they're all of a sudden exposed to things they've never seen in their life and in your home. And they're in a time of transition. They're very susceptible. Times of turmoil, people are very susceptible. All of a sudden, something happens that totally rocks your world. And you're like, oh my goodness, what do I trust? And twin sisters come to live in the heart of somebody that's deconstructing. Doubt and guilt. When someone is leaving the LDS faith and coming into evangelical Christian Orthodox belief, you know what they're struggling with inside? A lot of guilt. A lot of doubt. We have to reach out to them and help them to work through that process. So that's when people deconstruct. At times of loss, at times of loneliness, and times when we are vulnerable. Watch for people in our church who you know are going through turmoil or transition. And wrap your loving arms around them and help them a little bit more and be a little more understanding with them. Now, <clears throat> okay, so at any given time, there are various people going through this. Uh, why do people deconstruct? This was really interesting to me. I came across this, some of this thinking. What, I have done tons of reading on the subject, so I can't like just attribute everything to individual people because I'd be here all day doing that. Most of these thoughts are not original to me, but I got them somewhere else originally, and then they filtered through my brain for the last three months. 
So, some of what I'm going to talk about here, though, came from an excellent article on the Gospel Coalition website on deconstruction. Why do people deconstruct? Let, let me give you one more ex example how people deconstruct. All of us probably, to some degree, have deconstructed. Just think about the Jews in the first century who are coming into Christ. Think about Peter when he has a vision and God says to him, eat that meat. And Peter said, I've never ate pig. And God says, kill, rise, and eat. For him to do that, he had to go through a process of deconstructing what he had built his life on. And then he also had to work through guilt. I guarantee the first time Peter ate a nice BLT, he wasn't feeling very good in his conscience. I guarantee it. I thought about my own lived experience. Talk about lived experience. I, I was raised in a really good church in many ways. But in other ways, not so much. So in the church in which I was raised, it was highly, rabidly, almost dispensational. It was Arminian pragmatism. You, you know, did whatever would work. I mean, and, and people will get saved. Arminian pragmatism. And then on top of it, it was ultra, ultra separatist. Extremely separatist. As I have gone through my own personal journey of faith, there were things I was raised with that I had to deconstruct. The trick, here's the trick. When you help people deconstruct, people will deconstruct around you all the time. They're going to ask you questions. I'll give you one illustration. One of the biggest no-nos in the church in which I was raised was to go to a movie theater. Biggest no-no. I cannot tell you for how many years when I would go to a movie theater, I dealt with guilt. For many years. Even if it was a good movie. Even if it was a Christian movie. I had to work through that. I had to look at it and think, okay, what I was taught, was that real? Was that true? I, that's what was built into me from a child. And I had to work through that and embrace God's word in such a way that I built the structure of my life on what is true in God's word, not just what I was taught. So here again, we all go through deconstruction. What the key is, is to teach people to eat the meat and spit out the bones, right? And don't throw the baby out with the bathwater so that people just jettison Christ. Good illustration is a guy named Joshua Harris. Do you know who Joshua Harris is? Do you know who he is? He wrote a book called what? When he was a young man, 21 years old, homeschool child, he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Never went to Christian seminary or Bible college. I'm not saying you've got to do that if you go into ministry. Never did any of that stuff. By the time he's in his mid-20s, he is the senior pastor of a megachurch. And in the last year, he didn't just kiss dating goodbye. You know what he did? He kissed Jesus goodbye. Left Christianity. Apologized to the gay community and just totally deconstructed his life. The key is to help people as they deconstruct to spit out the bones but eat the meat and not jettison Christ. Now, there's bigger theological issues at play in that. We understand that from exposition of Scripture. Some go out of us 
because they were never really of us. We're not going to go into all those verses, though, today, but it's important we think about it. So why do people deconstruct? Here, I'm going to give you four reasons, and then we're done. First one's the easy one. And so we'll start on the easy, and we'll work back to the more difficult. Okay, first one. Why do some people deconstruct their faith? A desire to live in sin. That's why sometimes. So, Christmas next year, your young whippersnapper that's off in college gives you a call and says, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know, I, I don't go to church anymore, and I don't believe in Jesus. And you're on the floor. And then they say to you, by the way, I'm coming home at Christmas. Can I bring my live-in girlfriend home with me? Well, wow, that's strange timing. Right? That's kind of ironic. You don't believe anything I ever taught you was true. Why? Because you like a live-in girlfriend. And so your desire to live in sin suddenly causes you, so you can deal with the mental dissonance, you say everything I was taught isn't true. And that's how you deal with the mental dissonance. Sometimes people deconstruct their faith really quickly. And they do it because they want to live in sin. That's what it comes down to. We need to mark it down. Now, know that in all four cases we talk about, there can be a mix of things. And every person is a unique individual with their own lived, what? Experience. But sometimes this causes people to deconstruct their faith. Here's another one, coolness. It's cool to doubt in our culture. It's cool to kind of question authority. Coolness. I'll never forget, 10 or 12 years ago, a young man who graduated from high school, uh, uh, family in our church, no longer in our church, none of them are in our church, I won't mention any names, obviously, but this young person, great kid, grew up in the church, pretty good kid, um, you know, always just seemed to, to fit in, do the right thing, and he calls me and he said, can, can, I, can we talk? I said, well, let's go get a cup of coffee and sit down and chat. And he said, it was, a, it was an intriguing conversation. He tells me a story. He says, I really, really want to serve Jesus. And I want God to use me. I said, good. He said, but I've been really sheltered. He said, what I think I should do, he said, I've been praying about this. He said, I think what I should do is I should go and live in sin for maybe three or four years and make a wreck of my life. And then in three or four years, I'm going to come back to Jesus. And then I will really have a lot of street credibility. And when people hear my testimony, they'll think God really did something for me. But just being saved and raised in a Christian home, it doesn't really mean anything. And when I tell people, they just, whatever. Wow. I thought, man, you're being honest. I said to the kid, you know what? That sounds really good to you right now. But you don't know how deceptive your heart is. You go live in sin for four years, how do you ever know you'll come back? You don't know what's going to happen to you in those four years while you're living that way. You're going to grow to like that stuff. You may never come back to Christ. Thank the Lord. He did the right thing. He went to Christian college and he served the Lord. But the truth is, sometimes people just go and deconstruct because they want to be cool. That's what starts the process. Here's the next one. Now we're getting a little harder. Poor teaching in the church. Poor teaching in the church. The church bears a lot of blame because it has not taught truth. Many times in America, the church has taught personal opinion and made it scripture. Can I give you one illustration and then we'll move on? This one was, is not even on your radar, so you'll think it's funny. 
Somebody gave me a book. It was written in 1909 by a country preacher. It's interesting to read this book and to read his sermons. But in his sermons, one sermon he preached to his people, he preached on that to them that it was a sin to drive a car on Sundays. Are you glad you got to drive a car today? Are you with me on that one? Amen? When I got in my truck and started it this morning, it was 10 below. I would not be here if I had to ride my horse. I thank the Lord I got to drive in my car. He was preaching a sermon. He said it is a sin to drive a car on a Sunday. Here's just two reasons. Number one, if people start driving their automobiles on a Sunday, they will start going to the big town to go to church. That's one of his reasons. Number two, his second reason why it's a sin is people will skip church to go on Sunday drives. Let me ask you, is it true that when people started driving automobiles, it became easy for people to leave the small community and to go to the big town and to get in that church instead of this church? Is it true? Yes! Is it true that many people go on Sunday drives instead of going to church? Yes! But how do you attack that problem? It's not about the car. It's about what? The heart. It's about what you love. It's about, does worship mean something to you? If worship means something to you, then the car becomes a blessing to get you there. If your community of believers means something to you, the local town, you don't got to worry about whether people are going to drive to the big town. But he did what? He took his own public opinion, his own way of looking at it, his own personal idea, and he makes it equal to Scripture, and he puts a guilt on people when they get in their car to drive on a Sunday, and it was poor teaching. And then people grow up in that, and they say, I'm going to drive my car on Sunday. And they feel guilt, and they feel doubt. And they think they're disobeying God, when in truth, they're only disobeying a man's opinion. Poor teaching in the church. Here's the last one, then we're done. Real hurt. Real hurt. Real hurt causes people to deconstruct. Church hurt. Home life hurt. Classic illustration. I'm about done. A woman is married to a man who is a control freak and he is emotionally abusive. And that woman is tempted to believe that the reason her husband is emotionally abusive and a control freak is because his church has taught him headship. And then she comes in contact with some people who are feminists. And she buys their lie because of real hurt. Real hurt can cause people great damage. Now listen, when people are in turmoil, they are in doubt and in guilt because of real hurt, they are very vulnerable and susceptible to buy into and to imbibe Satan's poison. The church, individually and as an entity, needs to be very compassionate with real hurt. There are black Americans 
who have experienced real hurt. And it has been their lived experience. The church should not just shut that voice up. It needs to listen to it. But the church also needs to confront real hurt with truth, not just the latest cultural mumbo-jumbo. You know, as I've thought about this, I've tried to think about our church's culture. And I'll talk more about this next week. But man, I've had a sincere prayer that has really come into my spirit as I've thought about these things. Because so much of this has to do with power structures and what they're asserting is that, that the church has just become a tool to protect people in power. But my prayer would be that this church, that in this church we would have a culture that would allow for open, honest, conversation that encourages questions that it does not squash the conversation when someone is working through real issues and real hurt but that we, we would also be a church that stands uncompromising for the truth Amen. and I'll tell you to get that balance right is really tough But our prayer should be as a church that we are a hospital for people who have been hurt. But that we minister to them the truth. Not just the baloney that is being taught in the world today. We'll go deeper next week. This was just to kind of get the lay of the land. We're going to close with a song and I'm going to pray. And... Uh, this, oh, I've got to give you one. We do got to say one more thing. Okay, here's it, the end of it. What's the real antidote? And I'll just shut up after this. It's this. Jesus told a story at the end of Matthew 7. For the one that is weary. And that, Lord, we may be a place of healing and help. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as you sing a closing song together? on the rock of your word, Lord. Lord, that we would know the truth, that the truth we would be able to stand firm on, that Lord, when other things come against us, Lord, that we can always go back to your word, to know what truth is, to hold on to it, and Lord, to share it with others.